Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Introducing the first ever Grand Highlander, a mid-sized SUV with the ideal combination of space, performance, style, and advanced tech. The roomy Grand Highlander boasts three spacious rows with available seating for up to eight. It's available 362 horsepower. Hybrid Max powertrain on limited and platinum trims delivers the power, acceleration, and efficiency so your family can take on any adventure. There's even a standard digital key, a panoramic view mirror, and a 12.3-inch multimedia touchscreen so you always arrive on time. Live life grander in the first-ever Toyota Grand Highlander. Learn more at toyota.com slash Grand Highlander. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And now, Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. Welcome to Move the Sticks presented by FedEx. Daniel Jeremiah here. Draft week is finally here and I could not be more excited. Remember, you can check out our Move the Sticks 360 series on Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, and Tua Tonga-Vailoa. That is available now on your favorite podcast app. You can also go to NFL.com slash MTS video to check out our video versions of the 360 series where we take a deep dive into the top three quarterbacks in the NFL draft. YouTube.com slash NFL podcast. Well, there's so many intriguing questions surrounding the 2020 draft. I recently had the opportunity to talk to media members around the country and answer their questions as we approach draft day. So I wanted to bring you that question and answer session. Here it is. First of all, thank you guys for all jumping on this. Uh, and uh, I apologize for some of you that might have reached out that haven't been able to get back to you. It has been a uh, it has been a wild uh, wild run up to this draft. I've never seen anything like it in terms of the intensity and the attention that's focused on this. So um, it's going to be fun. Um, I'm glad that uh, we're able to figure out a way to, to to get this thing on schedule and and to launch this thing on Thursday night. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a fun event and. Uh, before we get to the questions, I also wanted to say how excited I am to work with so many close friends over at ESPN. Um, I've known Mel Kuyper for 20 years uh, since I was right out of college. He's always been so kind to me. So I'm looking forward to working with Mel. I've known Todd forever. Uh, he's a good buddy. Uh, Trey Wingo is a, is a pro. I've worked with Lewis Riddick with the Philadelphia Eagles. So we go way back. And uh, I've also had a nice friendship with Booger McFarland over the last few years. So uh, it's going to be fun to, to join together with them and, and hopefully put on a good show for everybody. We'll take our first question from Jeff McLean with the Philadelphia Inquirer. You've obviously been in draft rooms before. You've been a part of the process with, with you know, Ravens, Browns, and Eagles. And I'm wondering, in relation to a team like the Eagles that you do know well, how much do you think Carson Wentz and his opinion is factoring into selections and I say that specifically in regards to the wide receiver receiver position, one that certainly is going to be 
um, viewed uh, as, a, as a position of strength in this draft and one the Eagles also need as well. Yeah, I think he does have influence. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's over, you know, this particular player versus that particular player. Uh, but I'm, I'd be shocked if they have not had conversations with Carson and sat down and said, hey, what, what do we need? Um, do we need more speed? Do you need guys to be more reliable? Um, do you need more size? Um, do you want somebody that can play inside, can play outside? Like, what will make you comfortable? And let him kind of build the menu for the type of player you want to bring in. So I, I definitely think he would have an input on that in terms of the skills and, and what they're looking for uh, at the position. I, I don't necessarily think he's going to come in there and say, I'd rather have uh, – you know, KJ Hamler than, uh, you know, than LaVisca Chenault. I, I don't think he's going to have that type of uh, say so, but I do think he'll get a chance to uh, kind of craft the role and what they're looking for in that position. If you, if it was your pick for the Eagles, knowing what they need and, and how they view the position and Carson Wentz, and let's say they had the pick of the litter, who would be the guy you think they'd want? Well, for me, if you had the pick of the litter, it'd be CeeDee Lamb. <laughs> if you can get him, I think he's the best. Uh, I think he can do everything. Um, he can give you the big playability down the field, but he can also uh, do a lot of the dirty work on third down and in the red zone. And I think he's going to give, he would give Carson a lot of free yards after the catch. So uh, that would be my choice. But when I look at the, the top four guys between CD lamb, Jerry, Judy, Henry Ruggs, Justin Jefferson, I think Carson Wentz uh, would make a star out of any of those four players. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Dave Burkett. So, I'm looking about or thinking about the the Lions and like the uh, the three defensive prospects I guess that could be in the mix for them at three Okuda Isaiah Simmons Derek Brown, which one of those guys is the safest and why? Which one has maybe the biggest bust potential and why? And then how much does that sort of line of thinking I guess factor into a team's decision when they're drafting that high? Well, that's a great that's a great question. I would say the safest. I would say I would put Okuda down as the safest for me. Um, you know, I know exactly what position he plays. I've seen him play that position against elite competition, and I've seen him play at a very high, consistent level. So, to me, Okuda would be the safest. Um, the most upside, I would say, is is Simmons because of all the different things he can do. Um, you know, I just he's a special athlete and gives you so much flexibility uh, as a defensive coordinator, and that's why. You know, when I'm stacking those guys, how I've graded them, I have it Isaiah Simmons, Akuda, and then Brown in my in my next list that I think is coming out here pretty soon. So um, I think Simmons has the most upside, but there's a little bit of risk there just because he does so many different things. You got to hope that you can get uh, you know get him to be comfortable before you start really expanding his role. And then Derek Brown, to me, uh, I think Derek Brown is a dominant player against the run. He can collapse the pocket. He impacts the game on a down-by-down basis, but he's not an elite pass rusher. So I haven't dropped him far down my list, but I think I might have began with him at at number two or three, and I think I have him now at number five. Um, So I think he'll be a a competent, good pass rusher, but he's going to be more pushing the pocket than a double-digit sack guy. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Stu Jackson with therams.com. Hey, Daniel, uh, just curious what you think the Rams' best options might be at number 52 and now number 57 overall after the Brandon Cooks trade. Yeah, I mean, that's a good place to be at in this draft. Um, uh, When you look at where they're sitting now, that's a sweet spot. And if I was looking at a couple different positions, uh, 
you look at the linebacker position, I think that's a great spot if you wanted to get a linebacker. Um, a guy like Jordan Brooks from Texas Tech who can fly, um, I think he would be a great uh, replacement when you lose Littleton to be able to plug him in right there. I think he'd be a great fit um, and somebody that kind of you know plays with high, high tempo, which I know they appreciate there in that organization. Now, I think they need to you know keep an eye on the tackle position. Obviously, it was great to get Andrew Whitworth back uh, for another year. But I think you can keep an eye on that. And um, some guys in the in the 50s at that point in time, um, an interesting player for me is Sadiq Charles, the, the big tackle from LSU, who is ultra-talented. Um, you know, had some uh, suspensions there due to, uh, you know, due to some marijuana. But that is, you know, that's a challenge now for the league. And you're scouting with the way this has changed in the new CBA. I, I don't know that you uh, – um, you penalize him as much. So he's a very talented player who kind of factors into that portion of the draft. Uh, that would be an interesting uh, player there at the tackle position. I think, you know, Josh Jones, if he was to be there, would make some sense from Houston as a tackle. Uh, but those are a couple guys I keep an eye on. And if they, they wanted to go running back, I mean, gosh, you might be staring at one of the top four guys. If, you know, J.K. Dobbins was there, would be a great fit. I would love to see Clyde Edwards Alaire just because of what he could do in the passing game, uh, you know, with Sean McVay. Um, I think that would be a fun pairing as well. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Scott Goldberson with CBS Sports Radio, Las Vegas. Listen, the, the new home team here clearly did some some good work in the off season uh, to shore up that defense uh, via free agency, but now look to really the two biggest holes on the roster: wide receiver and cornerback uh, with 12 and 19 there in the first round. Most people think they'll go wide receiver at 12. You said you like C.D. Lamb the best. We were hearing, too, people might be trading up for wide receivers. What do you think uh, is going to be their play there at 12? And if they have two of those three guys left, who's the best fit for them? And at cornerback, should they go that direction at 19? Thanks. You know, look, I, I think any of those top receivers would arrive and be the most talented player uh, at the position for the Raiders. So, um, they can go a lot of different directions there. I am fascinated to see what happens in front of them, though, because as it stands, we look at that wide receiver run, you know, potentially could start with the Jets at 11, then the Raiders follow that up right at 12. So as we stand a week out, you'd say, okay, well, the Raiders probably are going to get their first or second choice of receivers if that's what they elect to do. But I think when it's all said and done, I would not be shocked at all to see Jacksonville trade out of nine. I know that there's been some conversations from other teams I've talked to that say they think that's a possibility. Um, so you could see teams either trading up for a tackle there or a wide receiver at nine. Um, you could see the Jets uh, go with one at 11 if they don't like their tackle situation. So they might end up getting their third choice at that point in time. And then they would have to judge, would we rather have the third receiver for them, which, you know, let's say it's uh, Ruggs, or would you rather take a corner in C.J. Henderson, who's, to me, clearly the second corner? Some teams uh, think he's right up there with Akuda. So that would be a decision to make. Do you take C.J. Henderson first, shore up the corner position, and know that at 19 you're still probably going to be looking at one of those top five uh, receivers, uh, who that may be, uh, would be interesting. So uh, that wouldn't shock me at all if we – have the positions right, but if they flipped it and they ended up going with the corner first and coming back with the receiver uh, at pick number 19. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Ryan Dunleavy with New York Post. Two questions here. Uh, one, uh, both related to the Giants. One, just generally speaking, how 
difficult do you envision trades being this year? Do you see less of them with all the technology that'll have to go into one? And then if you and then specifically to the Giants, uh obviously we've talked about offensive line quite a bit with them, but would it be a mistake for them as desperate as they are for defensive playmakers not to take one with at least one of their first two picks, if not both? You know, let's let's kind of start with uh whether they not they should go defense. I, I'd absolutely think they should go offense there in the first round. I think they should go tackle. They've got to get better up front. I know all the holes on the defense. I can spout out all the numbers about where they rank, and it's it's not good. Um, but they need to protect Daniel Jones, and they can get a twofer, and that you can get a player that's going to help him continue to develop, and it's also going to be a big benefit to the best player on your team and Saquon Barkley. So I think tackle is the – is the place that they go there in the first round, but I would not, uh, you know, I would not be surprised at all to come right back in the second round at pick 36 and either make a pick there or maybe do something different and try and trade back and collect some more picks in that range because you're going to have a bunch of really good defensive players um, that could come in and help that team in, in a lot of areas there in the second round. So um, that would uh, that would be what I would expect, and I would, you know, when you look at who that would be in the first round. I think uh, I've said Werfs for a long time is what I'd heard there. And, and uh, as we come down the home stretch here, I'm beginning to think it's going to be Jedrick Wills. Uh, so uh, that that's what I expect to happen there in the first round. Then the second round, you know, maybe they come back and they can get a corner, uh, you know, like a Jalen Johnson. Um, they could go get a, you know, one of the top linebackers would be there off the ball uh, would be interesting as well. So they'll they'll have options there in the second round. All right, thank you. We'll take our next question from Michael Gilkin with Dallas Morning News. Hey, Daniel. I'm hoping you could entertain a hypothetical scenario for me. If the Cowboys were intent on adding, in some order, a defensive end and cornerback in the first two rounds, and neither Caleb Vaughn, Chason, nor C.J. Henderson is available at number 17, how would you approach that? Which position would you go first, and who would be your targets in each respective round? Sure. So we're going to go DN and corner, um, and they are picking 17 and then 51, correct? So at 17 and 51, if I had to go DN and corner, I would probably lean towards going with the uh, uh, with the corner first at that point in time. Um, and I would I would I would take CJ Anderson if he was there. I do not think he'll be there. So I would go uh, for me personally. I would go with Jalen Johnson, uh, but that could be a trade back scenario. I don't think. At 17, you're not going to feel great about the corner or the edge rusher that you get. I think you could trade back and get who you want um, at that point in time. But if you ha- if you couldn't if you couldn't get out and had to stick and pick, I would take Jalen Johnson from Utah at 17, um, and then I would come back in the second round at 51 and look at the edge rushers that would be there at that point in time. I know some people don't view this guy as an edge rusher, but I like Marlon Davidson as a as a bigger end um, who can also rush inside. He would be a consideration for me. And then if you wanted to just get a fastball uh, that could that could really really rush in sub situations, I, I think Josh Uche is tremendous. Um, and you know it's a little bit different body type, but uh, I, I think he's going to get eight to ten sacks a year uh, at the next level. I think he's really good. So that's one of those ones you just try and make it fit, even though it doesn't have a perfect scheme fit. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Patrick Finley with the Chicago Sun-Times. If the Bears were intent on taking a quarterback, they're drafting twice in the second round, then not again until the fifth. How would you go about that if you were them? Wow. That's a great question. Um, 
picking 43 and 50, uh, when you look at the quarterbacks that can kind of be in range there, I, I think you're looking at Jacob Easton. Um, I think you're looking at, uh, at Jalen Hurts. I think those would be the guys you'd be choosing from right there. I think Jake Fromm's probably not a great fit in Chicago. So those would be the, the two guys that you'd be trying to sort out and, and figure out there. I I look at where they are right now. I look at the coaching staff and their familiarity with Nick Foles, and I just think it makes more sense to have that competition um, to see if Trubisky, what he can do under this type of pressure, and you know what you have in Nick Foles. I would not use one of those two picks on a quarterback. If you wanted to trade back at some point in time um, and, and look for a guy in the in the middle rounds, like a guy like uh, Jake Luton from Oregon State, I'd rather take somebody like that later on down in the draft and use those other two picks to try and help your football team right now. I just don't like the options they're going to have right there at that point. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Les Bowen with the Philadelphia Inquirer. I was wondering about wide receivers, not so much about the guys in this class, but having worked in evaluation, why is that position so hard to evaluate? Why are there so many high, uh, you know, first round busts at that position? Uh, and, you know, has, is that as bad now as it was 10 years ago or have, you know, as, as college offenses have, have changed, is it easier to evaluate them now, you think? Well, I, I look, at, last year was a good year in terms of a bunch of rookies coming in and having a lot of success. But if you look over the last several years, um, that second, third-round receiver group has arguably been better than the first-round group. Um, the challenge in scouting the position is that it's almost like two different games uh, for the college and the NFL in terms of what routes you're asked to run, which are very limited at the college level. If you, you watch a college game on a Saturday, you're going to see a bunch of slants, you know, Hitches and, and goes like that's it's very limited in terms of what they ask them to do, uh, very limited in terms of them having to read coverage and and sight adjust um, their routes. They don't see very much press coverage, so they don't have to get off press. So now we bring them to the NFL. You're asking them to get off press coverage. You're ask, asking them to think on the move, uh, and you're asking them to run a lot of routes they've never run before. So it's a there's it, a lot of adjustment there. But I think I give the NFL credit. I think the last couple years we're seeing the NFL be a little smarter with the transition period for these guys and figuring out ways they can get them on fly sweeps or bubble screens and just get the ball in their hands and let them make plays, um, simplifying it a little bit while they're young uh, before they can grow and evolve into everything you want them to do. So I think we're seeing, I thought last year was a great, uh, was a great example of, of the blueprint to get these guys on the field earlier and, and uh, improve that track record of the position. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Mike Burrell with the Seattle Times. Uh, hey, DJ, I just wanted to ask what your projection is for Jacob Eason at this point. Yeah, you know, Jacob Eason is uh, he's a polarizing player uh, when you talk to people around the league. I, I love the arm strength that he has. I love the flashes. You know, you talk about sometimes just grading the flashes of a player. If you look at him at his best, there's a lot to be excited about with the way he throws the football. He's a he's a really good athlete. It doesn't always show up, um, you know, when you're studying him in terms of some of the awareness and the ability to escape. But when they, you know, get him on the move, you can see he can move uh, for such a big man. Um, but he's got some bad habits that he's got to clean up in terms of, you know, trying to spin out of pressure. He takes a lot of bad sacks. He forces throws. He locks on. 
Um, the touch is, is an area that needs to be improved. So I finished up the process. He's my 64th player. Uh, I expect him to go somewhere in the second round. I think if you, if you're patient with him and you can really work with him and develop him, he has a tremendous amount of, of arm talent and, uh, there's a lot to work with there, but he's got some areas he really needs to clean up. And that's why I couldn't put him any higher. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Daryl Slater with Newark Star Ledger. Hey, Daniel. I was wondering, obviously you have the three receivers there in your latest mock going uh, three in a row there with Judy, Lamb, uh, and Rodgers. Not in that order, obviously. Could you just kind of give a thumbnail scouting report on, on each of those guys and why you think uh, it, it would seem that they go in that order in terms of Lamb being the best, followed by Judy and Ruggs? What separates each guy from the other and what are their strengths and weaknesses? Well, I think they're outstanding. Uh, it's a it's a 31 flavors receiver group this year. You know, I can, you can like a lot of them, uh, it's just different flavors. It's what you're looking for. Um, I have CD lamb as my top guy because of everything he can do. He can line up outside. He can win versus press coverage with his physicality. He's unbelievable after the catch. He's the best after the catch of the receivers in this draft. In my opinion, he can break tackles. He can make you miss. He's ultra competitive. Um, I think a lot of people have hit him on the fact that he played in the, in the big 12 and that's glorified seven on seven. But when you watch him in the games they've played and they stepped up in competition against Alabama, he had eight for a buck Oh nine and a touchdown. And then last year you saw him against LSU in that game. He had four for one nineteen in that game. So I don't buy into the fact that he's a product of the big 12. Um, but he's he's also somebody that can make plays above the rim. He can go up and get the ball down in the red zone. Um, the word that I just keep coming back to him over and over again is just competitive, competitive, competitive. Uh, and that's why I have him as, a, as the top receiver. Jerry Judy, next for me, is the best route runner in the draft, and that's obviously very important. He does a lot of his work in the slot. I think that's where he's best suited at the next level, although he can play outside. But uh, – he wins right now off the line of scrimmage, and he is unbelievable at the top of his route to get in and out of the break point. He does have some drops. I think those are more concentration drops than uh, than really worrying about his hands, but uh, that's an area he needs to clean up. And he can make you miss. He can make you miss after the catch. He's obviously got good burst, uh, but not quite as physical uh, after the catch and not quite as physical at the catch point in terms of going up in traffic and making plays. I give uh, CeeDee Lamb a little bit of the edge there. And then we get to, uh, to Henry Ruggs. You know, everybody knows about the speed, but I think what people lose sight of is this kid has got natural hands. He's outstanding hands. He only dropped one ball this year. He attacks it. He trusts his hands. Um, you think back to some of the speed receivers we've seen go in the first round that maybe people thought didn't live up to the billing. Uh, you think about Darius Hayward Bay. You know, he couldn't catch in college. You look at uh, Bashad Perriman, um, his hands were questionable. Ted Ginn, very inconsistent hands. This kid has that type of speed, but he catches everything, and he's extremely tough. He's just not as polished of a route runner as the other two right now, um, and that's something I think he can he can get better at, but it's a little bit of that is the curse of speed because when you're moving that fast, it is hard to get in and out of breaks uh, to gear down. So that's always going to be a little bit of an issue. But Tyreek Hill has been the comparison for him, and that's the blueprint for how you use him. And I know a lot of teams are, are looking for this type of player. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Leo Haggerty with Kids Sport Magazine. 
Running backs have been extremely devalued lately, except the great ones. What traits made Saquon Barkley a top five pick? Well, I mean, first of all, he's a he's a he's a freak athletically, and then he was involved in the passing game, and you could see what he could do in the passing game. So, um, you know, drafting a running back high is going to get a lot of criticism for a lot of folks, but to me, if you're somebody that can be a weapon in the passing game as well in the run game, while we can, you know, I don't know that it would be the smartest thing in the world to get the second contract with those players. That's been proven out. I think you can have a nice five- or six-year run of, of extreme production, but you better be able to com- to uh, compete and be a, a difference maker in the passing game, and Saquon Barkley has that ability. So not only can he run with power, and not only can he, you know, hit some home runs with his speed, he can make you miss, he can run over you, but also he's somebody you got to worry about in the passing game as well. So you got to be complete to have value at that position right now, just the way that it is. A quick follow-up with that. When you're evaluating a player, especially a quarterback like Jalen Hurts, does being a winner factor into that evaluation at all? Well, it does for me. I know some people poke fun at that and laugh at it, but when you've done nothing but win your whole life and you've played well in big moments, that that matters to me at that position. Um, So I just think that's contagious. You've got guys that understand what that environment looks like. They understand what it takes in big moments. So that, yeah, absolutely. That helps. That helps the evaluation. It's an easier sell in the draft room when you have the team accomplishments to go along with the individual stuff. So um, yeah, it, it matters to me at that position more, more than any other, obviously. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Rich Scarcello with Reading Eagle. What do you see as the strengths and weaknesses of a couple Penn State guys, uh, Gross Matos and Hamler? You know, Gross Matos, obviously you start with the production. Um, he's got really active hands. He's excellent with his hands. Um, he's outstanding on loops and stunts, and they move him around. He's just got a really good knack and a good feel as a pass rusher. I didn't see, uh, you know, dynamic explosiveness in terms of his twitch, but, uh, you know, he's, he wins off more technique and just an overall feel and instincts and understanding. Uh, you know, weakness, you know, he'll, he'll get stuck on blocks against the run. He'll get moved around a little bit, but you're drafting him to rush the quarterback. Uh, with Hamler, um, start with the speed. I mean, that's it jumps off the screen when you watch him. Um, the Michigan game was uh, was basically just a highlight show. I'm still upset with him for what he did to App State when he played against my alma mater a couple years ago uh, in that game. But he's, he's somebody you can pitch him the ball on a, on a fly sweep. You can get him the ball over the top of coverage. There's a lot of different things you can do with him. Uh, the downside, he's not big. He's under 5'9", he's under 180 pounds. Um, that's a challenge. And then just the drops. He's got, uh, he's another one that's got some concentration drops. He's got to find a way to clean that up a little bit. So, you know, lack of size, uh, not being totally healthy and the drops, I think could push him down a little bit lower than where he should go. He's my 57th player, uh, starting into the process. He was much higher than that. So, uh, I think somebody's got a chance to get a steal with this kid. If uh, he shows up healthy. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Tom Rock with Newsday. DJ, it seems like you ask four different uh, scouts and evaluators who the top offensive tackle is, and you get four different answers. I'm uh, wondering if you could sort of go through them all and, and, and rank them in your mind. I, I know you said Wilbs and Werps uh, for the Giants. Um, that's probably what you project with their opinion, not necessarily yours. Uh, you know, who, and, and, and to follow up on that, you know, is it strange to have four so tightly packed in terms of their evaluation? Yeah, good question. Uh, the way I see it, I have it is 
you know, we've been saying the big four. I have I have three guys up there, and then I have a little bit of a gap. I'll give you the numbers. So Becton is my seventh player overall. Wills is my tenth. Uh, I view that as kind of the top tier for me, those two guys. Then I think right behind them is Worfs. He's my 13th player. And then Andrew Thomas is my 18th player. So I have four top 20 guys, in my opinion. But I think there's a little bit uh, of separation between those top three and then Andrew Thomas. But I like, you know, Becton is my top player. Um, God didn't make many, many like this. I mean, he's, he is the definition of a freak. Um, he's to be that big and to still be able to move the way he does is incredible. And he dominates in the run game, um, in the past game, even though he's still working through, you know, some things technically, he's so big and so long, you can't get through him and you can't get around him. And I've seen, had a chance to see some of the training stuff he's been doing down there. Uh, he's training with one of the best offensive line guys in the country uh, with Duke Manningweather and the job he does out of Dallas. And you can see it in the video. It's just this kid getting more comfortable and, and, and getting better and better. So uh, I think Jedrick Wills on day one, you know, the first day of, of uh, practice is going to be ahead of Becton. Um, but I think Becton, the upside is what puts him over the top for me. So he's my top guy. Uh, Jedrick Wills is just a natural knee bender who's very explosive. He can get himself in bad positions and find ways to recover with his athleticism. You know, he played the right tackle spot there at Alabama. You've got a left-handed quarterback, so that makes sense. Put your best guy over there. Um, I think he's got left tackle ability. Uh, I think he can he can kick over there no problem. He's somebody in the run game, can uproot players. Uh, again, just very explosive, uh, very athletic player who I think uh, he's a top 10 pick in, in just about any year, in my opinion. Uh, Tristan Wirfs, Tristan Wirfs, when I first watched him, I thought he was going to be a guard um, just because he had some issues oversetting. He got beat on a bunch of uh, up-and-under moves, which worried me and concerned me a little bit. Then I thought he got better as the year went along. And then, obviously, the show that he put on at the Combine, you see the athleticism there, and, and you say, okay, well, I know this guy's – you know, he's got the ability to play, you know, to play better at tackle. So um, that's where I moved him back out, kept him at tackle. He's somebody that can really move people in the run game, um, but he's just got to be a little bit more patient in pass protection and continue to work and develop in that area. But, again, he's somebody with tremendous upside. Uh, Andrew Thomas, he's just a big, powerful uh, run blocker. He, he creates a lot of movement. When he gets his hands on you, he can really move you. He uproots guys, but I thought he was more of a one-track player. He struggled to adjust a little bit in space and then in, in, uh, in pass protection. If he can get out in front of you and stay square, he's fine. I just I did not see that elite level of foot quickness, and I thought when he sees some of the better speed rushers in the NFL, um, that could give him a little bit of trouble. So that's why I had him as the fourth guy. All right, thank you. We'll take our next question from Arnie Stapleton with Associated Press. I'm wondering if you could speak to the um... – the value of versatility nowadays as opposed to, you know, some years ago with guys like Simmons and McKinney and, and Bond, um, you know, they're, they're multiple. And uh, is this kind of a reaction to the um, off, uh, the up-tempo offenses or what, what do you think plays into this evolution of the versatility being so valued nowadays? Yeah, it's never been more important. You know, we use the phrase in scouting, we talk about positionless players and, and that's where it's headed, you know, where you, you're not going to be labeling these guys anymore as a, you know, on offense as a, some of these guys receiver running back. Well, no, they're just kind of, they're offensive weapons. You see 
Uh, I watch Austin Eckler every week with the Chargers calling those games. You see what he does as a receiver. We've seen, obviously, Christian McCaffrey and what those guys do. Um, Debo Samuel, who's a wide receiver who can also play running back. Um, that's, that's where the value is. And then defensively, you've got to find a way to match up with those. So you see guys like Derwin James. Um, you see what we see here with Isaiah Simmons where it allows you to keep your guys on the field and not get manipulated where they can, they can sub and get you in a look. And once they get you in a look, they're going to crank the tempo and they're going to isolate the guy that's, that's out of position and go at him. Well, when you've got players with versatility, they have that ability to be able to cover a tight end, but yet somebody that can also hold up at the point of attack if you want to try and run it down their throats. Uh, somebody that can cover in the slot, somebody that can drop back and play the deep half. It allows you to disguise your looks defensively, allows you to confuse quarterbacks, and allows you to match up with the athletes you're going to see. So those guys have never been more valuable. And, you know, one of the conversations that I've had over the last few years and really even more so this year is with the linebackers, it doesn't matter if, if you are an unbelievably instinctive player and you're tough and you're physical. If you cannot run, they can't hide you anymore. You're going to get exposed. So at that position, you just you have to lean towards athleticism. You sacrifice some size, uh, you know, for a guy like Patrick Queen because he can run and cover backs and tight ends all day long. Uh, you can blitz him. He can make plays sideline to sideline. Uh, same with Kenneth Murray. I mean, that's why those guys are you know at a premium when you get those linebackers that can really run and make plays. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Jim Wyatt with TennesseeTitans.com. Daniel, appreciate your time. Uh, I've seen a lot of people take uh, defensive linemen, tackles, cornerbacks uh, in the first round for the Titans. You took a receiver. What do you like about Brandon Ayuvere? And if they do go receiver, who's maybe around at 61 that could fill another need? Well, I, I love Brandon Ayuk. He's my fifth receiver, and uh, he's just – he is so sudden and so quick. You know, I know the 40 times says, uh, you know, four, five, Oh, he plays a lot faster than that. Um, and he's got, he's one of the things that's unique about him. He's got rare length. He is really long. Um, so you get somebody that can, uh, can make plays in traffic with his toughness. He's phenomenal after the catch. Uh, he can, he can help you in the return game as well. He's really good in that department. So just getting the ball in his hands and, and let him go, let him make plays. Um, but if you wanted a receiver there in the in the second round, I think that's what you said, right? Was it uh, 61, pick 61? Yeah, maybe if you um, go receiver I think it, in the first – yeah, I'm thinking maybe if you do go receiver yeah. in the first round, who maybe is there at 61 at, 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 that would fill another need, maybe a defensive line, tackle, or corner? Sure. You look at some of those other positions that they're looking at there with, with D-tackle and corner at pick 61. Um, let me give you a couple guys here. I pick 61. I think, you know, that's about the range for guys like Neville Gallimore. Um, it's about the range for Elliott from, uh, from Missouri, um, Lynch from Baylor. That's kind of that group you'd be looking at there at the defensive tackle position at the corner spot. Um, I really like Robinson, Reggie Robinson from Tulsa. I think he's a great player. Um, Igbenogany from Auburn is a tough one because he's got the athletic ability and the toughness that you love. He's just really struggled to play the football and hasn't made many plays. So he's got first-round athleticism, and he's got you know late-round production. So trying to sort him out is a tricky one. But I think he kind of factors in uh, right around that range as a player. Uh, Damon Arnett from Ohio State, he's my, uh, he's my 59th player. So he would be somebody that could, uh, could be in the mixer at that point in time. Real physical, really tough, can find and play the ball. 
Um, short area quickness is outstanding. He's aggressive against the run. Uh, he's just a little bit tight, a little bit rigid, but uh, and didn't run as fast. Ran four, five, six. So I think he's another one that's it's right about that time for uh, for him in the draft as well. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Doug Kyatt with NESN. Hi, Daniel. Uh, last year, Jolon Williams was kind of a, a late riser, it seemed like, in this process. Is there a player like that who you see right now who might be, you know, just starting to get on, on the radar as a, a first or second round prospect sort of late in the process? Yeah, there's there's several. And I, I look at some of these uh, some of these linebackers that have caught a lot of buzz here coming down the stretch. Willie Gay is fascinating out of Mississippi State. He was a five-star recruit. Uh, obviously, you could see it at the combine, just how athletic and how explosive he is. He ran in the mid-four-fours. He did not, uh, did not start a game this year at Mississippi State. Got in some trouble, got suspended a little bit for some academic things. But when teams met with him, they were very comfortable with him. He presented himself very well. Um, and he's somebody that I think could find his way into the second round. It wouldn't shock me if he got all the way up into the second round in this draft. But that's one that's kind of caught some fire uh, late in the process. I, I really like Jordan Brooks from Texas Tech, and uh, yeah, he's my 51st player. But if somebody decided to take him you know, late in the first round or at the very beginning of the second round, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't hate that pick. He's just a really good football player who's got tremendous range. So those guys are guys that have kind of popped up late. Thanks, If I could just throw in a, a quick follow-up there. Is there a player that stands out to you at number 23 for the Patriots in this draft? For me, it's A.J. Epinesa. Um, you know, I went back and, and I posted some of it, but I went back and looked at a lot of the notes that, that I had been given when I was with the Baltimore Ravens uh, from one of our scouts who had been with Coach Belichick. And it was a presentation from 1991 on what Coach – uh, values at every position and when it talked about edge rushers it talked about his uh, preference for size over speed out there and guys that can hold the point of attack in the run game and they can they can collapse the pocket they're power players and that to me like if you're drawing up a description of aj epinesa it was literally what they were looking for now that was 1991 that was a long time ago but those patriot defenses seem to all feature these this type of a player um, and then you add into the fact that he played for Kirk Ferentz and uh, Kirk Ferentz having his relationship with Coach Belichick. All that seemed to me like this guy was meant to be a New England Patriot. It just makes too much sense. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Bridge Simony with ESPN.com. Yeah, thanks, DJ. Uh, I have a Jets question, but not about a prospect. Obviously, you have a background with Joe Douglas, so I'm wondering what type of characteristics do you think we'll see from a Joe Douglas draft and how, what are some of the biggest challenges he'll face taking over this Jets roster? Well, I mean, the challenges I'll start there is that you, you don't have a lot of blue chip players at the important positions. Now I, I do believe you have one at the quarterback position in Sam Darnold. Uh, but when you look at the premier positions, you talk about edge rusher, you know, corner left tackle um, you know, there was not, there weren't a lot of blue chip players in those position rooms uh, when he got there. Now in free agency, he did a good job of just kind of spreading the resources around just to make sure that they can, you know, they can line up and play. And, uh, you know, they've got some upgrades there along that offensive line and uh, the defense is in, in pretty good shape overall. So now they've got to find ways to score points and they just couldn't do it last year. When you're 32nd in scoring and 31st on third down, uh, I don't know how they won seven games. I mean, you give the defense all the credit in the world. So they've got to go about getting that fixed. And that starts with getting much better up front, 
and it's then it gets to uh, you know you've got to give Sam Donald some weapons, and that's going to be I would imagine it's going to be high on the priority list with this draft. And you know Joe is Joe is always valued toughness. Uh, he's always valued you know really really highly competitive players. Um, so, you know, that's why it'll be fascinating to see, you know, what they end up doing in this draft. They have, uh, an opportunity at 11, you know, in front of them, where do you want to finish the run on tackles or do you want to begin the run on wide receivers? Uh, or do you want to trade down? So that's kind of the decision that they'll have to make there. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how they go about doing that. I am excited though, to see not just what they do at 11, um, but when you look at having two third-round picks, that's where I'm, I'm excited. I think they can get a starter on the interior of the offensive line with one of those, and I think they can get a starter at wide receiver with the other pick. Uh, so I, Joe, Joe's going to do very well in the middle rounds of this draft. That's where the sweet spot is. And I would not be shocked if either at 11 or 48 he traded down to get even more picks in that third, fourth-round range because uh, they can really upgrade their roster in this draft at that point in time. Thank you. We'll take our next question from William McFadden with AtlantaFalcons.com. Reports came out yesterday that the Falcons could be a team looking to trade up in the first round. If they do, you know, make a move up from 16, who are some players that you think that they could be, you know, looking to target? Well, I feel like they've been trying to find an edge rusher forever. So why, what the heck, let's go up and just trade for Chase Young. How high do you got to go? You know, that would be, that'd be fun. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I think you're looking for impact, impact defensive players. And, you know, we kicked this around the other day on path to the draft about, you know, to me, the, the four players that made sense were you trade up for Akuda to give you a premier corner. You trade up, you know, Henderson, you wouldn't have to go up as far, but you probably have to go up a little bit to get him for those top two corners or, you know, if Derek Brown or Kinlaw started to drop a little bit, you can go up and range and get them. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, wait a second. You know, sometimes we see these off-the-ball linebackers uh, drift a little bit uh, further than they should in terms of where they were rated. And Isaiah Simmons is the third-best player in the draft. Um, But if he were to start getting down into range where you had the ammunition in your Atlanta, you wanted to go up and get him, man, that would be fun to plug him in to that defense and that scheme and uh, and let him run around. When you're in a division uh, like they are and you've got to see Kamara and you've got to see – um, Christian McCaffrey, having a guy like Isaiah Simmons can kind of help erase some of that. So, um, you know, that would be that would be fun to see him get plugged in there and play next to Deion Jones. There'd be a lot of speed out there. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, let's go for it, though. Forget all that. Let's just go all the way up and get uh, Chase Young. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Clarence Hill with Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I, I see you had a Cowboys taking Chase on, uh, in your mock draft, but if, if Chase and Henderson on the board, who do you see them taking? And also, what about those safeties? You have them in the first round. Are they second-round options? Why are they all dropped out of the first round? Well, I think when you look at McKinney, is still the best safety. Um, did not run as well as you would have hoped. And they play him a lot more down, closer to the line of scrimmage. I have a big grade on him. I like him. But I think there's a chance he could drift a little bit. And I think teams are saying they kind of like this this next wave of safeties that would be there. So if you passed on one in the first round and you come back and you know, I think there's a thought that, uh, you know, Delpit, Jeremy Chin, Antoine Winfield, you know, Kyle Duggar, Ashton Davis, like there's some depth there. Uh, so I think that could cause that, that run to happen more so in the second round. When it comes to the decision on the corner versus the edge rusher, um, 
that would be a, that would be a fascinating one. Um, you know, depending on what they're able to get out of Alden Smith, if they think they can get something out of him, maybe that would push him more to the corner. Um, I, you know, that would be a, that would be a fascinating decision for them to make in terms of how I have him rated. I have C.J. Henderson as my 22nd player, and I have Chase on as my 25th player. So if I had needs at both those positions, if you're asking what I would do, I would take C.J. Henderson and and go from there. But I think either one of those players would be uh, would be plug and play and a great fit. Can I stick in one more question uh, on the TCU sure. guys? TCU guys, um, there, there are three, maybe four that could go in the first two rounds. Certainly three that have a chance to go in the first round. Could just Talk about Rager, Blakelock, uh, and uh, Jeff uh, Gladney and, and their chances of going high. Blacklock is – he's fun, man. He's one of my favorite players to watch. He ended up being my 19th player. Very dynamic. Um, he he just jolts people when he hits them with his hands. I think if – if uh, you know, he never had an injury before, we'd be talking about him. He'd have been on the on the scene more on the college football world. We've been talking about him a lot more. Uh, but again, I think he's a top 20 player. He's a number three defensive tackle for me. Um, I think he's got a chance to be a really, really good pro. Um, Jeff Gladney, he moved him up a little bit. He's my 42nd player. He's my sixth corner. Reminds me of Denzel Ward. Um, he's just quick and feisty. He's very fluid. Um, you know, he'll, he'll throw his face in there as a tackler. He's tough. You know, if he was a little bit taller, I think he'd be a slam dunk first rounder. And I still think there's a chance he is a first rounder. He's such a good player. Uh, Jalen Rager, he was challenging to study because the, the quarterback play was not very good. And then he had some drops this year. The production is not where you'd want it. But, man, you can see him move, and he's explosive. Um, he's a fluid athlete. He makes, he'll go up and, and make some big-time catches, contested catches, play above the rim. Uh, but then he just has a ton of drops. So he's got to sort the drops. He's gifted as a returner, but then he's got a bunch of muff punts. So he's kind of a you know, glass half full, glass half empty when you talk to people around the league. There's some people that really like him and some people that are down on him. Uh, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. He's my he's my 56th player, but he's my 10th receiver, and I know some teams that think he's the, the fifth receiver. So uh, it wouldn't be stunning to see him find his way into either the back of one or uh, or very early in round number two. So they have a, a good group there at TCU. Uh, and Lucas Niang is is very talented tackle, um, who uh, right. you know, people are a little bit concerned with medically. So you got to got to answer the medical question there. But he's uh, he's a talented player. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Chris Russell with Sports Illustrated. How much would it? take for you if you were the Redskins at two uh, to move down to say Miami at five would it require all three of those first round picks or would you be willing to do say two firsts and maybe a combination of seconds being that the Redskins don't have a second currently yeah I mean I can I mean you want to do the math here we can do it real quick so the 20 the second pick is 2600 points right so then the fifth pick is 1700 points um, so you got to come up with 900 points out of that thing. So you're going to get, um, let's see, pick, let's go pick 18. Pick 18 is, is 900 points. So, you know, if you're just going off the chart, that would be the chart. But yeah. I mean, that's what I, if I'm, if I'm the Redskins and, uh, and they wanted to give me five and 18, uh, that's what it says it should be. So if you want to make them play, a, if you want to make them pay a premium, um, because you're you're sitting on such a, a big time player, the best player in the draft in Chase Young, 
I, I would guess you could say, give me five and 18. And, uh, you know, maybe you try and squeeze the Dolphins for, uh, you know, for one of their twos, uh, 39 or 56. But, man, the Dolphins, that would be an expensive, expensive move for them. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Mitchell Gibbs with WGS Radio. Seems like there's a lot of national media love for two. I even saw Lewis Riddick talk yesterday about how there was a talent gap between him and Herbert, which I don't agree with. But anyway, he said that. So I want to get your thoughts on that and where you think those two guys are going to be picked. And then secondly, we've heard a couple of rumors about the Saints maybe trying to move up or maybe not to get a quarterback. Uh, even Kamara's name's been been mentioned because this is the last year of his rookie contract, possibly trading him. He's going to become very expensive next year. So I want to get your thoughts on those questions. Sure. First of all, with, with Kamara, I mean, for Drew Brees to come back, um, you know, when there was a lot of thought that, that he was going to hang it up, for to have him come back and not uh, and not have Alvin Kamara would not, would not make a lot of sense to me. This seems like it's an all-in. Let's try and win one this year. And that's, you know, that's why I struggle with, you know, even at 24, if Jordan Love, who I would love to see Sean Payton get a chance to develop and work with, with all of his talent, um, you know, would you take him there or would you try and get somebody that can help you uh, try and make a run at the Super Bowl this year? That would be a, a fascinating dilemma for them uh, there. Uh, what was the other what was the other part of your question there? Uh, about the first oh, part Tua, that- Tua and Herbert. Tua and Herbert. Yeah. So with, with Tua, sorry about that. With Tua and Herbert. I think there is a gap between them. Um, I think Tua is a more instinctive, natural player. He's got better instincts. Uh, he's uh, just got a better feel. I think he's got better touch and accuracy. He can layer the ball a little bit better. I think he's more urgent and sudden in terms of working through progressions. Um, I think, obviously, Herbert is bigger and stronger. Herbert, in my opinion, is actually a better athlete. I don't think people you know, understand that as much, but he's a, he's a really good athlete. Um, and, uh, and he's obviously durable. So, or he has been durable uh, recently. So you've got that advantage going for you if you're Herbert, but I think Tua, um, you know, when, when everything's dialed up the way it's supposed to be dialed up, I think they're comparable. I just think when, uh, when something doesn't go as expected, I think Tua has got a little bit more of a playmaker uh, gene than, uh, than Herbert does. But, you know, look, I think it's, it's going to come down to getting in the right situation and the right surrounding uh, for both those kids. Do you take into consideration who they play against and who they play with? Because, too, as you know, uh, most of the time yeah. Alabama plays with such a stacked advantage over another team, which Oregon may not have as much. So I just wonder if you take that into consideration. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it works both ways because – you know, I think the SEC, the defenses you're going to see in the SEC in a week-in, week-out basis are better than what you're going to see in the Pac-12. But Herbert's had some good crossover games. Obviously, they played Auburn this year. Um, but I didn't think that in those in those bigger stage moments, I thought Herbert was solid, but I never thought he dominated those football games against better teams. Now, it is tricky to evaluate both Joe Burrow and Tua because of the amount of talent that they have around them. So the way I did it is I went back and I watched them against the best teams they played against. And then I went, and fortunately with the video that we have now, I'm able to sort it, and I watched all their snaps under pressure. And when you do that, there's a decided difference between Joe Burrow and everybody else in the whole draft. That's, uh, you know, he was phenomenal when he was under pressure, and he was phenomenal when they were playing against uh, teams with similar talent. Um, Tua was good. Um, and I think there was still another little drop below him where Herbert was. So 
So that to me is how I try and sort through that stuff. That's the cool thing about technology and the video that we have now is you know, I get to use what the teams use. So uh, you can sort those throws and find out when they've uh, when they've got pressure on them and uh, and just watch those in a cut up. It's very helpful. We'll go ahead and take our next question from Tom Krasovich with San Diego Union Tribune. Daniel, looking at the Chargers, I, I think uh, they've been pretty good at quarterback since 2000, Drew Brees and Phillip. Of the mm-hmm. guys that might be there uh, at six, let's discount uh, Joe Burrow. So do you see anyone yeah. as attractive as those guys when they came out? I don't know if you were young enough or old enough to yeah. even be drafting uh, <laughs> when uh, John Butler took Drew Brees. Yeah, I was in uh I was in my apartment in uh in El Cajon, uh right at a right at, I think it was just out of college when uh, Drew Brees got picked and I remember we were moving furniture. They were moving into the apartment, so I was moving furniture that day and the first thing I did was set up my T V to see uh who the Chargers were gonna take. So I was not I was not working with the team at that point in time. But I was uh my first year in scouting was the Phillip Rivers draft, so uh, I remember that one and obviously they've had tremendous stability there. Um, in terms of the, you know, how do these these guys stack up with uh, with Philip? Um, I would say with with Tua, you know, not not nearly as big, but I would say in terms of grade, I would say there's some similarity there uh, in terms of uh, playing the game with, uh, you know, really really good eyes, uh, very accurate, um, good decision makers, poise. Um, touch throwers. I think Phillip coming out had a, a little bit stronger arm um, and uh, Tua moves around a little bit better. But I, I don't think that's a, a terribly far-fetched comparison there in terms of just the talent. And then with uh, you know with Herbert, I would just say Phillip was just a more natural, even though it's an unnatural motion, um, he was naturally gifted with layering the ball, throwing with touch, um, anticipation. I think Phillip was a little bit of a uh, a little bit ahead there. And then Jordan Love, you know, Jordan Love has more physical uh, tools than Phillip does, just with the ability to make so many incredible uh, throws with with extreme velocity from all different uh, platforms and falling away and arm angles, um, but nowhere near as consistent uh, or as accurate as Phillip. So uh, that's who I can compare him to with Phillip. And I I say that having seen so much of Phillip and and, – over the years, but that year, to be totally uh, uh, honest, I was on the I was on the staff there in Baltimore, but I was not assigned to watch him. So uh, I just sat in the room and listened to the reports that year. And my follow up on since you mentioned Love is, if you were a GM, how concerning would the uh, marijuana uh, violation be to you? Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's the marijuana violation itself. I think it's the fact that it was the week of the bowl. Uh, of the bowl game, which it's just, you know, it was a poor, it was a poor decision all the way around. Uh, the timing of it was not good. So it, it definitely matters. You got to have that discussion with them, but you also have to factor in where we are, um, you know, as a country and where we are as a league in terms of how you're dealing with this now with the new collective bargaining agreement. So it's kind of a, it's a new, it's a, it's a whole new era in how you deal with things like this. And, if it had happened in the middle of the summer, um, I don't think it would be any big deal at all. I think it was just a little, uh, little concerning of when it happened uh, with a big game on the horizon there. So uh, I don't think at the end of the day it's going to move him one spot either way. Uh, I don't think it'll have much of an impact, but it's um, it's a topic that would get brought up with him in the interviews. Thank you. We'll take our next question for 
Kiana Martin with San Francisco 49ers. Thanks, DJ. Um, in your latest mock, no, no you have rushed to, well, no, to the 49ers at 13. Availability aside, if you could pin any of your top receivers to the 49ers, who do you see as the best fit in regards to a Kyle Shanahan-style offense? Would it still be Ruggs, or is there another name who would be an ideal or dreamy fit? Well, for me, he's the he's the dreamy fit. <laughs> I, I want to see it. Um, just as a football fan, I want to see what Kyle Shanahan could do with with Rugs, with uh, with his speed, with his uh, with his toughness, with the ball in his hands. I just envision you know the stretch bootleg um, that they like to run there, and having Rugs running those deep over routes and watching you know people try and run with that dude. No chance. Um, and I think Kyle Shanahan got a front row seat to see what the speed look like uh, in the Super Bowl with Tyree Kill on the biggest play of the season that, that cost them a, a Super Bowl ring. And that speed was, was the difference. So um, I think they'll know what that value is. And, and I would love to see what he could do with him creatively. Um, man, it would be, it would be a lot of fun, but don't get me wrong. Those other, other top three receivers um, and I would throw Justin Jefferson even in there, although 13 might be a, a little bit early, but the, uh, any of those, uh, any of the top four receivers in a Kyle Shanahan offense are going to be extremely productive. They're great players. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Jonas Schaefer with the Baltimore Sun. Just with the uh, analytics community kind of ascendant in the NFL, uh, do you see that maybe uh, coinciding with the devaluing of running backs and some, I mean, on some teams' draft boards uh, over the next couple of years? No, I think that's real. I think. Um, you know, I think that's been a topic of conversation for a while now, but I think as most teams, you know, have a robust uh, analytics department now, they're, you know, they are showing them the value of the positions and showing them where you can get quality starters you can win with um, and not using valuable resources at certain positions. And unfortunately for running backs, that's kind of, um, that's kind of been at the top of that list. So that is, that is, that has an impact, no doubt. I, I'm curious to see how this draft goes and how it's looked back on, um, you know, five years from now, because there's going to be less uh, analytic impact on this draft than anyone we've seen over the last handful of years, because we don't have all the numbers. Now, a lot of these kids, I think I had 11 of my top 50 players did not run at the combine. So you're not going to have some of those data points. You're not going to have the pro day data points. Um, you, you know, a lot of the data that had been, you know, pulled together to make, you know, some suggestions and decisions for a lot of teams. They don't, they don't have all that data. It's more of a tape draft. So when you look back on this five years from now, will we find out that it was beneficial um, that they just went off the tape or are they going to look back and say, man, you can see the, the, the holes in the data. And that's why we had such a, you know, a horrible hit rate in this draft. I think it's going to be fascinating to look back on in five years. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Jess Root with Cardwire. Thanks, DJ. Hey, uh, with the Cardinals, obviously you've talked about the Jacksonville Jaguars at nine moving down. What are the odds that, that Arizona's in play for moving down? And, and what do you get a sense for, for what they're doing? And, and then secondly, the, the left tackle, right tackle potential of players, how's that going to affect the top of the board with those guys? Yeah, I mean, the good news is, is uh, you know, when you look at the top tackles, for me, Beckton is my top tackle. Now, he played – uh, the year before uh, Coach Satterfield got there, they flopped sides in games. So I think it was a strong side tackle. So he was he was moving the whole time. Um, so he played right, played left. Worfs has played right. He's played left. Um, I think the other two, you're looking at more left tackles. So 
I'm always a little bit hesitant to, you know, to say, okay, this guy's never played left tackle. No big deal. He can do it. Um, I think there is an adjustment there with that. When you look at, uh, you know, last year's a great example, Andre Dillard, been a left tackle his whole life. He took some snaps, uh, right tackle, wasn't very comfortable. Uh, much better player on the left side. Uh, that's where he is. But, you know, when I look at Jedrick Wills, even though he's a right tackle, I think he's got all the ability in the world to, to play on the other side. There might be some adjustment there, allow for some time. Um, but I think he could play on the left side, no problem. Now the Cardinals in their particular situation, uh, with DJ Humphreys at left, um, you know, I, I think he'd be in a pretty good spot because Wills is a right tackle. Uh, plug him in right away. Worse has been a right tackle for the most part, and uh, and Beckton has a lot of experience there. So uh, Andrew Thomas would be the one that that would be a little bit would have the most adjustment between all those guys if you were to pick him there. Uh, what the Cardinals are going to do, though, um, I've said this a bunch before. I just I don't think they've been able to run the offense the way they want to with Coach Kingsbury because they haven't been able to protect. And, uh, and getting a right tackle to come in there opposite of D.J. Humphreys, um, I think that would, uh, that would allow them to get more guys out into the route. And they've all of a sudden, now they've got a stacked receiver room, allow you to get more of those guys on the field and get them out in the route. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But if, if Isaiah Simmons, for some reason, falls, all bets are off. Um, I, I don't know that they would pass on him if somehow he was there, if the Panthers passed on him at seven. Um, I'm beginning to think that that would uh, that slide would end with the Cardinals. Thank you. We'll take our next question from James Johnson with Jaguars Wire USA Today Believe Podcast Network. I really wanted to ask a question on the Jacksonville Jaguars, who you have spoke on a little bit, uh, because C.J. Henderson is a guy that's uh, building a lot of buzz right now, and he's a guy that if you look at the Jags track record, they love drafting Florida guys. Dante Fowler, you got uh, Taven Bryan, Jawan Taylor. Uh, do you think that it's a possibility that, you know, his buzz uh, could cause him to be drafted at that spot, at the number nine overall spot? Well, I think there's a I think there's a real possibility. He ended up as my 21st player, but he's my second corner. And you're talking about a premier position that everybody's trying to fill at the corner position. So that's not, that's not a terrible reach um, if he were to be the ninth pick. And he's got all the athletic ability in the world. He tested unbelievably well. He's fluid and smooth. Um, my issues with him, why I see the difference between him and Okuda, he's a better he's a better athlete than Okuda. Okuda's just a better football player. Okuda's tougher. Okuda tackles better. Uh, he finds and plays the football a little bit better. So, uh, you know, Henderson has is, is got all the upside in the world. I think you'd say even more upside uh, than Okuda. But, man, he's got to clean up his tackling, and he's got to get a little bit more consistent playing the ball down the field. But to answer your question at nine, um, you, know, that would not, uh, you know, that would not totally surprise me. But I, I do, as we get closer, I do expect Jacksonville to, uh, to try and find a way to get out of there. I don't know necessarily they're going to pick at nine. I wouldn't be surprised to see them move back and move around the board a little bit as they continue to add you know, more picks, not only for this year, but even maybe attempting to add some picks for next year. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Tyler Palmateer with the Norman Transcript. Jalen Hurts said on Pro Day uh, that no team had talked to him about playing something other than quarterback, but there seems to be this school of thought that that Jalen could be sort of a Swiss Army knife type player. How do you see that unfolding? Do you see him being somebody that does a lot of different things, or is he, you know, could he could he go in and play quarterback, starting quarterback for for an NFL team? 
Well, I think he's got the ability to be a starting NFL quarterback, and that's why he's my, you know, he's my fifth quarterback uh, in the draft, and he's ended up being my 50th player when it was all said and done. So I have him as a second-round player. Um, my thing with him is, is if you want to get him on the field and he's not going to be your starter, I'm not saying, hey, we want you to play receiver. We've seen with, with Taysom Hill some of the things he's been able to do just coming in as the quarterback. So to come in as the quarterback and just be able to, you know, to use him in different ways to actually play the position, not ask him to, to come out there and, and uh, you know, line up in the slot or play running back. I'm saying, no, we'll get packages where he comes in, plays quarterback. Uh, we can we can throw the ball. We can do some zone read. We can do a lot of different things with him in a package uh, while he's developing and continuing to improve as a passer just from an anticipation standpoint. That really is his, his biggest deal. He's got to just improve throwing with a little bit more anticipation. If he can do that, you know, I, I think team some team's going to be able to uh, um, to put him in as a starting quarterback in this league, and he's got a chance to be really successful. Um, he's a playmaker. He's uh, he's somebody that you know just finds a way. I always say with, with under pressure, you need a quarterback that can identify it and attack it, or somebody that can escape and create. And Jalen Hurts is going to get to the point where he can identify and attack it because he's very bright. But in the meantime, his ability to escape and create is uh, is going to be what gets him going. It's going to get him an opportunity because he can make plays. And just real quick on Kenneth Murray, you, you kind of touched on this earlier, but um, the reports on his, his combine interviews and, and team interviews have been really strong. How, how often do those strong pre-draft interviews carry over you know, into NFL success? And then what role do, do Murray's interviews specifically play in keeping him kind of locked into potentially in the first round? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I would say the closer you get to the middle of the field, the more your leadership, intelligence, character uh, comes into play in the evaluation. So those are, that's the nerve center of your team. When you talk about your quarterback, your center, your middle linebacker, your safeties, those are the guys that are the communicators. Those are normally the leaders of your team. I think it's like that in in baseball as well, Um, you know, kind of building your team up the middle. So, that ability to uh, dominate interviews like he did, to fill the room with your presence, um, to know your defense inside and out, all that stuff at that position is huge. And it, it does it does help lift you up the board. And I do believe it, it, it translates. And I think that you'll see guys, when you miss on players, a lot of times it's it's not the ability, it's, it's, it's the person. And I think with Kenneth Murray, everybody that's talked with him trust this kid with their life i mean they just talk they rave about him they don't shut up about him so um I, that's an encouraging sign and i think that does bode well for him at the next level we'll move on to our next question from alex byington with montgomery advertiser how much do you think because of uh the the quarantine the stay at home um part of this virus not being able to go visit guys go to pro days small schools that kind of thing how much is that going to help um, bigger schools, kids that are maybe day three guys, you know, for Alabama. It's going to really impact the non-combine players. If you're a non-combine player, you're at Alabama, teams have seen you and seen you in the fall, seen you at all-star games. They've had exposure to you. They're more comfortable with you. Um, they're going to be more comfortable turning in the card. Now, some teams will still even have a problem with those guys because they might not have medical on them. Um, but the, the non-combine players where you didn't get a chance to get medical, um, where you didn't get a chance to visit with them, 
um, it's going to it's going to penalize them a little bit, unfortunately, and it's going to be the benefit of the guys that were, uh, you know, big school players or guys that have been to the combine. The medical is the is the biggest hang up on these guys, because the last thing you want to do is assume you've got a healthy player and you spend a fourth round pick on him and he comes to your building and you find out, oh, gosh, this guy, uh, you know, he's got arthritic knee and, you know, or some other type of an issue. So not having a chance to get your own medical on those players, it's going to be uh, it's going to be tough. I really enjoyed taking the time to talk to media members around the country and looking forward to the actual draft, which is right around the corner. My partner, Bucky Brooks, along with Rhett Lewis and Lance Zerline, will have you covered throughout draft week. We do appreciate all the Move the Six fans subscribing to our podcast. Please leave a rating, leave a review, and thanks for downloading Move the Six, presented by FedEx. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu.